This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Just a few years ago back, I, I kind of sort of met John Moorhead when he was part of a conference here in Grand Rapids. I say kind of sort of met because we were only able to do so by phone. But we had him here on Common Threads by way of telephone to discuss his multi-faith work, primarily between evangelical Christians and Muslims. We've kept in touch since then, and I recently found out that he edited a book that caught my attention. It's entitled, The Paranormal and Popular Culture, A Postmodern Religious Landscape. So I thought, sounds like a perfect conversation for common threads. So we've invited John to be with us once more. A little bit about John Moorhead. He is an academic researcher and writer specializing in new religious movements, as well as religion and popular culture. His writing includes a chapter on matrixism for the Brill Handbook of Hyper-Real Religions, entries on paganism for the Handbook of Religion, and the co-editing and editing of volumes on religion and popular culture, including The Undead and Theology, Joss Whedon and Religion, The Supernatural Cinema of Guillermo del Toro, and Fantastic Fan Cultures and the Sacred. He blogs at theofantastique.com. He also hosts the Facebook page Evangelical Chapter of the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy. So we welcome once again to Common Threads, John Moorhead. Hi, John. Hi, it's good to be here. Thank you so much. Certainly. Uh, you know, it's funny because I really only know you from uh, your work, as I mentioned before, your work with uh, multi-faith movements, particularly uh, the evangelical chapter of the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy, your work with Muslims and Mormons and all of that. This is like a whole other side of you I had no idea existed. It's kind of fun. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, so this is how you pay your bills. <laughs> well, I don't know about paying the bills. It's uh, a creative and academic outlet for me. We'll put it that way. <laughs> okay. Okay. Great. Great. Um, well, I've got a few questions for you because it's an interview show. I guess I should. Uh, so uh, my first one is, would you agree that both traditional religion and paranormal devotees share something in common, that is, that they're both seeking or claim to have found a, a transcendence from the mundane. Yes, I would agree with that. The, the interesting thing in, the, in religious studies and the paranormal is that uh, whether it's uh, just the general public or academics, they tend to distinguish in terms of alleged uh, legitimacy. So you've got traditional religions that are more mainstream, that tend to be more accepted, that receive the greater share of academic attention, and the participation of practitioners. And then you've got the paranormal, which tends to be marginalized uh, by scholars, and uh, people are, are reluctant to talk about it, even though increasing numbers of people are 
are uh, believing in various forms of the paranormal. Um, but when you look at it, really, uh, I think uh, a little more objectively, I think whether it's traditional and mainstream religion or the paranormal, the so-called fringe, they all represent the human desire to try and, and find a narrative and uh, answers to our place in the universe and the questions of meaning. And so that's part of why we did this book. Now, one difference that I have noticed over the years, and maybe maybe you found something different, but I've known a number of people who uh, are a part of a variety of paranormal movements, and we certainly have to distinguish because there there's a lot of differences amongst the variety of, of movements that we might call paranormal. But by and large, I would say, unless they're connected to a religion, because some of these paranormal movements are connected to something a little bit more traditional, uh, is that there doesn't seem to be the kind of moral codes in paranormal movements that you find in religious movements. Uh, can you speak to that? Do you, do you find that, uh, yes, indeed, there are, that we just maybe don't hear about them as much? I really think it depends on how one is defining the paranormal, and that, that's a, a big issue. In the book, we really draw upon Jeffrey Kripal's definition, looking at those beliefs and phenomenon that tend to be at odds with both mainstream religious understandings and current scientific knowledge. Um, so that's a pretty broad definition, and as you say, it can include a lot of different beliefs and phenomenon. Um, but I, I would think it's a, in general, I think that's correct in that we're dealing with things like UFO phenomenon and, and cryptozoology sightings of various, uh, whether it's Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster and so on. Those tend to be phenomenon that people are uh, say that they're experiencing, beliefs that they hold. Now, at times you will find that coalescing into a more formal kind of religious group. So you have... Um, spiritualism and so on, which does include some kind of ethical system, I believe. So again, it's moving away from phenomenon and more towards uh, a groupish kind of understanding, more organizational kind of structure. So it really depends upon what expression of the paranormal you're looking at. From my understanding, and I want to be clear, I wasn't around back then. But in the late 19th century, early 20th century, when there was a significant interest in the paranormal, I get the impression that a lot of people well, here in America, and of course, it was mostly Christian, that a lot of people who were involved in the paranormal also were church-going Christians, and you ask them their religion, they're going to say, I go to my Presbyterian or my Baptist or my Methodist church every week, every Sunday, uh, but on Friday nights I get together for a seance or uh, you know, a Ouija board or whatever it is. Does that, do you think that rings true, at least back then? I think that might have been the case uh, historically back then. I mean, human beings tend to be syncretistic. That is, we uh, we may hold to one particular, uh, give our allegiances to one large religious tradition or set of practices and beliefs, and yet we're also bringing in other aspects from other traditions and, and other places in the culture. Um, I do know that in the present, those people who would have strong conservative 
religious convictions, particularly Christians, tend to have less acceptance and belief in the paranormal. However, people continue to be syncretistic today, and you've got people in a variety of religious traditions that they would identify with who would still hold to some kind of paranormal belief. So our participation in religion, in the spiritual uh, is not the tight, compartmentalized kind of thing that we like to think it, it is in terms of academic exploration. It's very porous, and people are drawing upon a, a broad broad variety of strands. And, and it does seem to me that there are times when interest in the paranormal peaks, and then it might wane and come back again. Is, is that simply a matter of... Um, not really noticing what's going on, or do you think that there really are times when interest truly does exceed what it might have been a few years prior, and then again goes kind of goes back into the closet a little bit and, and comes back out? Uh, yeah, I do think there is this uh, kind of oscillation in terms of growing, ebbing and flowing interest in the paranormal. I'm not quite sure... Why that is, I would be interested to see if there are some studies uh, done on that. I developed the interest in this. I'm a child of the 1970s. And during that time period on uh, television, there were documentaries and pseudo-documentaries hosted by people like Rod Serling of The Twilight Zone and Leonard Nimoy, who did the television series In Search Of after Star Trek, which looked at a variety of paranormal phenomena. I was intrigued by those. I watched them. I watched horror and science fiction films and television programs that touched on paranormal things. So in pop culture in the 1970s, it was saturated coming out of the counterculture in the late 1960s with interest in the paranormal. And I think that kind of died down a bit in the 1980s. Maybe it flowed into uh, the growth of the the New Age movement. And now we're back in a time when... uh, even when we were in an increasingly secular and scientific age, we keep hearing uh, belief in the paranormal continues to grow. So, I, again, I do think there's this ebb and flow. There's this increase and decrease over time, and there are a variety of factors that contribute to that. I'm just not quite sure if we have a handle on what those are. And let's talk about ethnicity. And, and for my purposes right now, I'm, I'm, I only want to speak about European ethnicity. Uh, would you agree that, say, there was more interest in paranormal activity from those cultures coming from Southern Europe as opposed to Northern Europe? Uh, and when we talk about uh, that division, uh, to some degree, actually to a large degree, we're also talking about the difference between Catholic countries and Protestant countries. Uh, do you see the same level or is is there a different level? And 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 of course, those people from both northern and southern Europe came to the United States, and many of them maintained their cultures for several generations. Much of my research into the paranormal has been on the American scene. We've got some contributors in the book who come from other cultural backgrounds. We've got one from Brazil looking at uh, UFOs in that cultural context. My assumption is I think this is largely, in the European context, kind of a a white uh, phenomenon. But then again, other cultures I'm aware of with a little bit uh, have their own paranormal kinds of experiences. And when cultures come together and ethnicities come together, 
and rub shoulders. Uh, again, there's that tendency towards syncretism and bringing things into the culture and into the uh, ethnicity as well. So while while my focus has been again on the uh, kind of white uh, Anglo-Saxon experience uh, with the paranormal, my assumption is that this is kind of a human interest and a human phenomenon. We would find that across cultures. Sure, my this is just uh, my experience. I has, don't have the science that, that uh, you and your colleagues have, but uh, the uh, the Southern Europeans again, here in America, the ones who migrated and brought their cultures with them, uh, I tended to see more of an acceptance of the paranormal in the Southern European traditions. Uh, uh, For one thing, there's much more of an emphasis on miracles in Catholicism than than there is in Protestantism. And uh, different things such as uh, the wise women who apparently had certain prophetic powers were often in neighborhoods fortune tellers things like that i don't i don't uh, see fortune telling as something that happened in scotland and norway <laughs> you know i mean maybe it does right. i have no idea but you know we we think of roma culture gypsy culture and uh, you know the italians the spaniards this is just my take so uh, again, no science behind it, but yeah. that's clearly what I've seen. I think you might be onto something there. It's not just Roman Catholicism, as you know, Pentecostalism is much more open within the Christian tradition to the the possibility of the miraculous on a regular basis than Protestantism is. Protestantism is far more cognitive, emphasizing worldview and doctrinal considerations. It leaves room for the miraculous, but far less room than other religious traditions. I think drawn to something. It's a combination of cultural influences, worldview, religious orientations and things, and all those play a part in whether or not a, a given culture is open to the paranormal. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is John Moorhead. He is the editor, one of the editors, of the book The Paranormal and Popular Culture, A Postmodern Religious Landscape. I believe it's somewhere in the book, uh, I forget which, which uh, uh, chapter or which um, contribution, it seems that people with more artistic tendencies go for the paranormal than, uh, than those otherwise. So perhaps actors, uh, uh, visual artists, dancers might be more drawn to, uh, the, to the paranormal than, say, an engineer or an insurance salesman. Is this a, a left brain, right brain thing we're, we're talking about here? Yeah, first let me, uh, I do want to make sure in case uh, he listens, uh, Daryl Catarine is my co-editor there, so I'm by no means uh, the only editor on this project, as you've noted. Um, I, I think there are a variety of factors that, that lead to an openness and interest in the paranormal, I think uh, psychological orientation, whether or not one is more open to the imaginative and the artistic, I might be a little different in this regard in that, again, I do the, the academic work, but I also try and leave space for the imaginative and for uh, possibilities. So I, I want to be careful that we're not painting a picture of a dichotomy, that if one 
has engineering and academic kinds of interests that one isn't going to be interested in the paranormal, but there may be something to those kinds of uh, dispositions in one's psyche that leaves one more open to the possibilities of the paranormal. Uh, going back uh, a few minutes, you mentioned that you're a child of the 70s and you were very interested in, uh, for instance, the television programs of the paranormal and reading books on the paranormal. Back then, did you identify as an evangelical Christian? Uh, back in the 1970s, I did not. I was, uh, of course, everyone's views and perspective is uh, biographical. My story is that I was raised in the 1970s, largely agnostic. Um, later on, I got involved in a Mormon sect. Eventually, in the 1980s, I became evangelical. I think if listeners are aware, it's unusual for an evangelical to be writing in positive fashion about the paranormal. You tend to find various uh, ways of approaching the paranormal. There is the, the secular debunking kind of perspective, and many times evangelicals will grab onto that as a means of saying, well, the, the paranormal is illegitimate, and, but if there's something that appears to be legitimate, it must be demonic and satanic in nature. And then you've got the true believer kind of mindset, where everything that takes place must be uh, must be genuine, and we just need to embrace all of it. When my co-editor and I had phone conversations about doing the book, we agreed that while those perspectives are out there and they're important, what we wanted to do was create a space that said, look, what does interest in the paranormal tell us about the human interest in finding meaning in today's world? And what does it tell us about pop culture? What does it tell us about spirituality? And so my experiences in the 1970s and continuing into the present really uh, is aimed at trying to understand what does the paranormal tell us about what it means to be human in the 21st century. Those who mix uh, uh, religion and the paranormal, um, what about... We we touched on this just briefly, but I'd like to get into it a little bit deeper. Miracles. Um, if you believe in miracles, let's say from a very Christian sense, either Pentecostal or Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, that does fall the way you the way you define paranormal. That 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 does fall under that. Uh, correct. Yeah, I think that's correct, and it's interesting. I think it was uh, Jeffrey Kripal a few years ago wrote a piece that uh, I resonated with where he noted that it's interesting that if you have certain kinds of supernatural experiences, burning bushes or angelic visitations or resurrections, uh, people who are conservatively religious and mainstream religious traditions tend to look at those as legitimate kinds of supernatural experiences. But if one claims... Uh, to have seen uh, extraterrestrial beings and to have conversed with them, uh, or to have seen fairies or what have you, that's normally considered the paranormal, but would still be in some sense a supernatural experience or a transcendent experience, that is somehow illegitimate. So it's interesting in that there is a criteria that's being applied, when in reality, if you look at it, uh, they're, they're similar in terms of being a supernatural or transcendent experience, which is providing meaning to the person who has the belief in the experience. So there, there is, you mentioned at the beginning of the question, religion versus paranormal, and sometimes I wonder whether those lines of definition and categorization are as hard as we tend to make them. 
Well, yeah, and I, actually the way I started the question was people who mix religion and the paranormal, but one could say that it's not a it's not a mixing. It's it's not a mixing of one versus the other. It's it's a mixing of one type versus another type of of right, a seeking right. seeking transcendence, as, as we we said earlier. So, to some, at least from an academic standpoint, if you don't have any skin in the game, the revelations of Fatima. Um, are equal to the revelations of a Ouija board. Am I correct? Uh, you mean in terms of uh, how the uh, person having the experience would view them in terms of an authority? Exactly. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Again, it's the individual uh, within their their own, uh, either their religious tradition or their cult, whatever it is that's helping them frame the legitimacy of experiences. Uh, they're, they're both having supernatural experiences or transcendent experiences that they are, are accepting it as uh, real and authoritative. It's just differing criteria for doing so. What about those who do not believe in the paranormal, but then have experiences that they cannot explain? You know, it, it's one thing to go, it's one thing to have an experience where you're predisposed to believing that these kinds of things can happen. And it's another thing when somebody says, has completely atheistic, has, has no belief in anything that he or she cannot see, feel, taste, or touch. And then they have an experience that might be considered paranormal. Do you have any experience with people like that? Yeah, I think there are people who uh, wouldn't consider themselves believers in the paranormal who are having anomalous experiences. And it's not necessarily believers versus unbelievers. Uh, Michael Shermer, who's a noted skeptic, uh, wrote an interesting article where he noted that for many atheists, belief in uh, the possibility of alien life can function. That paranormal belief, uh, the possibility of even not only aliens but UFOs, can function in the place that God functions in providing meaning for atheists. Um, so one of the things I did in my, I wrote the conclusion to this volume, is I point out uh, various reasons why academics can find value, serious academic value, in the study of the paranormal. One of those is to help us understand not only various forms of belief, but also unbelief. So there are people with no religious convictions. They might be atheists, and yet they are having uh, anomalous experiences. They are open to the possibility, and whether or not they recognize it, it parallels uh, the provision of belief and meaning for people even in atheistic and humanistic traditions. You know, it's, it's always been an interest to me that the idea of life on other planets or perhaps being visited by other planets is considered paranormal. I mean, there could be life on other planets, right? I mean, that we, we haven't found that, but it could be true. And, and it could be true that somehow we have been visited by those people. And even, even the term unidentified flying objects, I think we all believe in unidentified flying objects. We, they're, they're, sure. Right? There have been objects that have been flying <laughs> that have not been identified. <laughs> you know, but uh, how, how are they grouped into the paranormal? 
Yeah, I should distinguish between, uh, there's a difference between the belief and the possibility uh, that uh, those uh, material processes that allowed life to arise on Earth are operative throughout the universe, and when the conditions are right, that life can arise somewhere else, and there could maybe even intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. So simply believing in the possibility of uh, alien life isn't necessarily paranormal. I think where it begins to cross over into the paranormal is the idea of UFOs. Um, some interesting work has been done where if you look at the frequency of reported sightings, the variation in alien descriptions, um, and the, the enormous distances that would have to be traveled in order to accomplish this, it seems to violate what we know about the laws of physics. And therefore, some researchers, researchers have said that the UFO phenomenon, rather than representing uh, advanced intelligent life from other planets visiting here, really looks more metaphysical. Uh, it, so the UFO phenomenon tends to be defined more along the lines of the paranormal rather than under scientific investigation of advanced alien life visiting this planet. Do you know of any instance in, say, the 20th or 21st century where there has been some sort of event that has taken place where people claim that it might it, it happened because of alien life and it still hasn't been explained by science yet are you referring to sightings or what, what specific uh, sightings or an event that that is an event that is has has a little bit more credibility than me just telling you hey i saw a ufo last night i saw a spaceship last night you know is there is there any particular event that it would make someone like you go, hmm, now that's interesting because you had 50 people and they all agreed on the same thing, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, the, you know, the, uh, the army did say that uh, something was in the air last night. You know what I mean? Something that you'd have to say that that really does deserve a little bit more investigation. Is there any one event that uh, that you can think of? Well, I don't know about one event. I must say, uh, just on a personal note, that uh, there was the uh, television series, The X-Files, in the 90s, and you had two main characters. One was the skeptic, the debunker, and the other was the true believer. Uh, I really consider myself uh, kind of a, a hybrid of those two. Uh, I'm open to the possibilities. I want to look at the evidence, but at the same time, I want to make sure that uh, I'm not granting credibility to, to every alleged experience. And it was UFOs and the UFO phenomenon in the 1970s that really was of most interest to me. In fact, I was a, a member of MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, in the 1970s, so it holds great interest. But more specifically to your question, I don't know of one particular experience. I will say it's been interesting keeping tabs on this over the years and doing the research again for the book. Um, you may have seen uh, news reports online recently about the military uh, coming out and saying pilots uh, with um, footage from uh, their aircraft where they have uh, captured on film high-speed objects of unknown origin. Uh, they don't know what it is traveling faster than ought to be able to, to travel, and they don't know what it is, and it's threatening uh, our airspace. Um, these are things that are captured on film 
by numerous pilots. We don't know what they are. I think it's worth taking a look at, and it does uh, make one pause. Uh, it's something that we ought to be taking seriously and, and asking ourselves, what is it? That's that's a great example. And, John, we are down to the wire for this edition of Common Threads, but I want to thank you so very much for the time we've spent today and invite you back next week. Great. I look forward to it. You've been listening to Common Threads on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and my guest today has been John Moorhead. He is co-editor of the book The Paranormal and Popular Culture, A Postmodern Religious Landscape. Please join us again next week here on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with John Moorhead. He's the co-editor of a book that caught my attention recently, The Paranormal and Popular Culture, A Postmodern Religious Landscape. A little bit about uh, John Moorhead. He is an academic researcher and writer specializing in new religious movements, as well as religion and popular culture. His writings include a chapter on matrixism for the Brill Handbook of Hyper-Real Religions, entries on paganism for the Handbook of Religion, and the co-editing and editing of volumes on religion and pulp culture, including The Undead and Theology, Joss Whedon and Religion, The Supernatural Cinema of Guillermo del Toro, and Fantastic Fan Cultures and the Sacred. He blogs at theofantastique.com, and he hosts the Facebook page Evangelical Chapter of the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy. We welcome once again to Common Threads, John Moorhead. Hi, John. Hello. Good to be here. Hey, before we get into the book that we were actually talking about uh, today and that we spoke about last week, tell me what is a hyper-real religion? Hyper-real religions, or sometimes they're called uh, fiction-based religions, 
um, are religious movements or groups that are based upon an aspect uh, of pop culture. Um, so, for example, you have uh, you mentioned uh, my work on matrixism. Uh, there is uh, an internet-based uh, group of people who find religious significance in the Matrix films. Um, there is Jediism, which uh, does a takeoff on the Star Wars mythology. Um, there are people who've even found religious significance in some of the philosophy from Star Trek films. So there are a number of aspects of pop culture that are spinning out narratives that people are grabbing onto for meaning and creating spirituality. And one of those labels that scholars use to describe those are hyper-real spiritualities. Hmm. That uh, reminds me, I'm not sure if this would, would fit exactly into that, but but certainly to some degree, I think. Are you familiar with the, the, the jazz great, uh, the saxophonist uh, John Coltrane? Yes, I am, a little bit. Okay. Uh, he uh, he became very involved in the mystic towards the end of his uh, life in the in the 60s and um, years ago we had someone on from the Church of John Coltrane in San Francisco so wow. yeah yeah and and he, <laughs> he he didn't write anything and there were no lyrics to his music it was all instrumental but the um, the titles were were very spiritual, and uh, he said whatever inspired him was deeply spiritual. So they created a church. Well, there, there is some overlap in your your question with our book on the paranormal, in that popular culture uh, includes a number of of uh, elements and narratives from entertainment, uh, television, and film, and video games, and so on, and people in the construction of again looking for meaning. Uh, creating spiritualities and having spiritual experiences by drawing upon the resources at their disposal, including popular culture. And the paranormal is a part of that. And which leads me to my first question. I was I was thrilled and surprised to see that one of the chapters in the book you co-edited is about Batman. <laughs> and it was really very insightful. Uh, let's Let's talk about that for a while. So how does Batman fit into this? Uh, folks might normally not normally think about Batman in terms of the paranormal, but uh, the author who did uh, that great chapter, Jack Hunter, uh, who is a great scholar in his own right, and in fact he's the editor of an uh, interesting online journal called Terra Anthropology, which brings together uh, anthropological perspectives in looking at paranormal phenomenon. Uh, he wrote this chapter called The Dark Knight Rises, Shamanic Transformations in Gotham City. And basically, he's, he's looking at various expressions of the Batman narrative. And his argument is that uh, Batman can be understood, uh, elements of it, in, in tapping into the idea of the shaman, uh, that one can have spiritual experiences uh, and, and enter into experiences with a spiritual realm, and then Batman includes some of it. I had never even considered anything like that or seen anything like that until Jack submitted this chapter. So it's one of the more interesting contributions of the volume. And and just exactly how can we we look at Batman as as a shamanic experience? Uh, well, I mean, one of the things uh, that drives Jack's research, he's very interested in altered states of consciousness. And uh, so, for example, in one of the Batman films, I can't remember, there's been several of them, but 
in one of the films, uh, I think it was the scarecrow figure, uh, puts on a mask and uses uh, drugs in order to uh, induce uh, a negative altered state of consciousness in those in, that he wants to control. And so his argument is that's one example of the Batman narrative, the Batman mythology, uh, using uh, chemicals and uh, various experiences uh, where the mind is under the influence of chemicals uh, in order to enter a, a different dimension. Obviously, it's in a negative kind of sense in, in the Batman film, but his argument is that that can be expanded and one can have shamanic experiences as well. You know, you mentioned drugs. I'm curious. Uh, back in the in the 1960s, uh, I I have you know what I met somebody less than a week ago who told me the same story. I, this is fascinating. Uh, people who were very involved in the psychedelic movement in the late 60s and early 70s, they took LSD or some other hallucinogenic. And they had an experience that led them to believe, to more than just believe, to, to actually have this conviction of, uh, of the transcendence, of the transcendent. And then mm -hmm. they give up drugs to find that in a more natural uh, way. Usually it's in the contemplative tradition. And uh, as I say, I've, I've run into people here and there, and I just uh, met a gentleman less than a week ago, told me that same story. And I'm wondering if uh, uh, the use of hallucinogenics plays into any of the, the themes of the chapters in this book. Uh, I think uh, Jack's chapter is the one that goes into it uh, in most depth. Moving outside of the contributors to our book, I think it's worth mentioning there's a fascinating little film that doesn't get nearly as much attention as it should called Altered States with William Hurt, a science fiction film. And basically, it's about a scientist doing research on his own psyche, trying to have these altered states of consciousness by sitting in a, a chamber where one floats in salt water and blocks out all sensory experience coming in and allows one to go inside and to have these mystical experiences. The film is worth checking out because it has a strong spiritual dimension to it, in that by going inside himself, he begins to transform not only mentally but also physically and to tap into the long history of human evolution, including the spiritual. And so this idea of whether one is using drugs to do it uh, or one is altering the mind by cutting out external sensory experience and going within, one is able to tap into some kind of spiritual dimension that one isn't normally able to access through regular experiences. Another thing that uh, is, is in the book is a study on paranormal healing modalities. And this is interesting because you know, some, some modalities of healing or, or pseudo-modalities of healing, if you will, are complete quackery and have been disproved a, a number of times. But then there are other elements, uh, other healing processes that really do seem to have something going for them, and they also have a spiritual element to them. 
And uh, for instance, acupuncture is the first thing that comes to mind because acupuncture claims that there is this this uh, spiritual energy that flows through us called chi. Hindus call it prana. And there are uh, exercises uh, from the Indian tradition that mirror the Chinese tradition with, with chi. And, and now, I just read an article that uh, certain... Uh, Insurance companies are covering acupuncture, even though it has this spiritual foundation to it. Um, and then uh, also chiropractic. Now, chiropractic uh, seems to have a lot of science behind it. But at the same time, this idea of energy in the spine, many people who subscribe to Eastern uh, worldviews would claim that chiropractic also has a spiritual uh, side to it. But then, then you have Reiki, uh, which really seems to be out there. Uh, it, it, tell me, what uh, what have you found in all of this? Yeah, you're uh, touching on an area, of course, <laughs> that is extremely controversial, but we'll go ahead and make our comments and allow the, the listeners to draw their own conclusions. The chapter in the book that you're talking about is by Charles Inman's and it's titled Paranormal Medicine, and uh, he discusses this. And, of course, um, alternative medicine uh, covers a wide variety of practices. And as you mentioned, some of them are, are highly dubious and don't have much by way of scientific support, and uh, some of them do like acupuncture. Um, and many of these uh, forms of alternative medicine do have some kind of connection to religion and spirituality, the question is, uh, are these um, necessary for one to, to believe and accept this, or, or is it not? So, for example, with acupuncture, tends to come out of um, the idea of this energy flow, and so on, out of the East. Um, there are many people who benefit from acupuncture uh, in the stimulation of the central nervous system who don't accept uh, the spirituality connected to it. Some people do. So uh, I think what we have to do is... Uh, be open to the best of alternative medicine and trying to find uh, healing and relief from pain without necessarily jettisoning uh, what we know uh, works and is good for us from uh, Western medicine, perhaps uh, practice something more holistically. Yeah, there's. Um, it's interesting, too. Uh, I don't remember if, if that chapter... Does it get into yoga? Do you remember? Uh, I don't believe so, if memory serves. Oh, okay. But yoga is another one of those where there has been uh, a lot of controversy as to whether or not one can practice yoga simply as an exercise uh, and a discipline without tapping into the spirituality behind it. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is John Moorhead. We're talking about a book that he co-edited and is out right now entitled The Paranormal and Popular Culture, A Postmodern Religious Landscape. Yeah, it really is interesting uh, uh, on yoga because all of the all of the tests that I have seen, all all of the the data that I've seen on the testing of yoga indicates that it clearly can help people in certain situations. Now, it doesn't cure cancer, to the best of my understanding. It, uh, it doesn't cure muscular dystrophy or uh, you know any number of diseases, but I have just known so many people 
who practiced yoga and say, you know, this used to be a problem for me. And you know what? I practiced yoga for six months and now it's no longer a, a problem for me. And certainly one can do stretching exercises and all of that with, without any belief in anything. But uh, because it does come from a religious tradition, I understand why some people are very concerned because they, they think of it as a gateway drug, so to speak, that uh, right, you know, you're, you're right. doing downward dog uh, one day and uh, the, the next, uh, the, you know, in six months you're living in an ashram uh, in India. <laughs> you know, so, uh, and, and who knows, that, that could happen. But, uh, so anyway, um, the, in the evangelical world, let me ask you this. Um, so for instance, say chiropractic and acupuncture if, if you were to tell your peers that you were involved in either one of those, would, they, would there be concern? Um, I think perhaps amongst some there might be, uh, particularly those who have what are called uh, apologetic ministries that are, are trying to warn people about what they would consider to be false spiritualities. There might be some, but I think uh, acupuncture has gained more acceptance, chiropractic, they would tend to, to fall back on the scientific evidence evidences for that. I think there might be more controversy in evangelical circles with things like yoga and Reiki and things like that. So it really depends upon the particular practice that one is uh, engaged in. Sure. Let me ask you this. With a project like this, co-editing a, a significant book like this uh, in, in terms of its subject matter and its size— just what is it that you do? Um, do you send out a call for essays on the subject? Do you make phone calls and say, hey, give me uh, this, uh, th- this article that I read in this academic magazine or whatnot? And then do you actually edit the piece itself? Do you cut it down? Do you look for uh, grammar issues, all of that? What, what, what is an editor, and in your case, co-editor, uh, doing for something like this? In, insights into publishing. Um, before I get into those specifics, let me kind of just share how this book came to be. Um, you mentioned my blog, Theophantastique, where I write on a variety of topics, including the paranormal, and have done so over the years. Um, I uh, ran into, uh, was referred to Daryl Caterina, my co-editor, by another scholar, Joseph Laycock, uh, because Daryl was looking to put together a volume on the paranormal, and my name was recommended. We touched bases uh, by phone a couple of times to discuss the volume. And um, my co-editor approaches it more from a, his, a history of religion perspective, whereas I'm coming at the subject matter more from sociology of religion and that kind of thing. And so we, we brought those two perspectives together. You put together a description of the volume of what you're trying to accomplish, and then you put it out there and say, we're, uh, we're entertaining a call for submissions. And then you cross your fingers and hope that you get uh, a good number of quality submissions by qualified scholars covering subject matter that you want to include in the volume. And uh, we did that. In fact, uh, we received our initial uh, number of folks who said, yeah, this is what I want to write on. We said, okay. Uh, as things progressed, we had a few folks who had to fall out, and we had to look for some more submissions and 
Thankfully, we received some uh, additional submissions that really made it an even stronger volume. Uh, you set a deadline, and once submissions start coming in, then the hard work comes of, of editing, and you simply go through and have to do your fact-checking and make sure that the uh, writer is making good arguments, that it makes sense, that there's good documentation, and uh, then it goes back after it's edited to the author, and uh, they uh, make changes that you're requesting, and and then hopefully you turn over the contents of a, a finely edited volume to the publisher, and you go from there. So it's a long and laborious process of love in what you're trying to do. You, you, you've made me just exhausted <laughs> listening to the process. <laughs> yeah, how long did this take you? Uh, I think it took us a couple of years from original conception uh, to the finished volume. It, it just takes a tremendous amount of time. And I, I do want to say uh, one of the, the aims of the volume is it's an academic volume put out by Rutledge, which is a, a respected academic publisher. So uh, folks need to be aware this is a, an academic and not a popular volume. It doesn't mean there's not some things that uh, people who don't normally look at academic materials can't find helpful. Uh, but it is an academic volume, not a popular one. Uh, therefore, it is a little pricey. So until a paperback version comes out uh, in the future, hopefully uh, it might best be secured through uh, interlibrary loan. Um, but what we wanted to do was send the message to the academic community that the paranormal phenomenon that tends to be marginalized by academics and looked at is uh, an, a research area that isn't to be taken seriously Instead, we think it is that it, again, represents serious spiritual, religious, and cultural phenomenon taking place in the world today, and that scholars need to take it seriously if they want to understand how the landscape is changing and how people are searching for meaning today. And I think that's a noble effort. I'm, I'm very happy that you're doing that. I suspected when I uh, got this volume from you, that I would find something about Satanism or devil worship, whatever you want to call it. And I seem to recall that in the 1980s, that was a hot topic. Nowadays, whenever I hear the term Satan worship, usually it's connected with people who are secularists, who are simply using the term for sort of a shock value. Uh, is is that the case? Is that what you're what you're seeing as well? Yeah, actually, um, there's a lot of work that's been done in the study of Satanism academically. That tends to follow not under the parent uh, fall under not the paranormal, but rather new religious movements. Um, contrary to to popular understanding, most uh, Satanists and most Satanist groups uh, don't believe in a literal supernatural being, the Christian devil. In fact, most are atheistic, um, and therefore Satanism is more Satan is more of a figure that is used for shock value uh, that uh, symbolizes a particular philosophy of life that uh, they are espousing. That, now, there are some uh, Satanist groups, um, such as the one headed by Michael Aquino, the Temple of Set, that uh, is theistic and does believe in the reality of a supernatural figure behind their religious tradition, but again, most Satanist groups and individuals uh, are atheistic. And there's one that has drawn a lot of attention recently in the media out of Salem, Massachusetts, and they specialize in pushing buttons, particularly conservative Christian buttons, in challenging 
uh, separation of church and state issues with uh, the placing of Ten Commandment uh, monuments. Uh, they have an alternative. They want uh, the, the right to uh, place a Baphomet statue next to the Ten Commandments statue uh, and on various state properties around the country. And so, again, they've been very good at challenging Christian hegemony over the separation of church and state issue. And uh, Satanism is an interesting uh, study under new religious movements in its own right. You also have a chapter uh, uh, in the book, Jesus and the Undead, Resurrected Bodies in Scripture (laughs) and the Zombie Apocalypse by Kelly Murphy. What can you tell us about that? (laughs) That uh, is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, You mentioned when you talked about my biography, I co-edited with Kim Paffneroth a volume called The Undead in Theology, where I wrote a chapter on zombie Jesus. And um, Kelly Murphy's chapter in this book uh, kind of echoes some of that. Um, It looks at uh, the place uh, of the zombie in popular culture, and it does have strong uh, overlap uh, with uh, the Christian tradition in terms of the idea of the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, the idea of zombie Jesus was originally... Uh, coined and put together by uh, atheists on the internet as a means of poking fun at Christianity. But my argument is, uh, rather than simply get all upset and uh, and poo-pooing that, why not say, yeah, let's let's consider this idea of zombie Jesus uh, and see. Uh, let's have a conversation about uh, Jesus and the idea of resurrection and afterlife and all kinds of things that we were all interested in. Uh, Kelly Murphy does a great job. At, uh, at looking at the zombie phenomenon of the book. Um, as you know, in popular culture, zombies continue to be extremely popular through the Walking Dead television series and films and comic books and uh, video games and all kinds of things. So her chapter does a great job at sketching uh, how popular that is and how it overlaps with paranormal phenomenon. Do you find examples, and maybe maybe you're one yourself, you you say, I think you mentioned last week, you were interested in the paranormal, particularly uh, UFOs. Uh, then you joined, uh, a, a, you called it a, a Mormon sect, and then you, you moved to more traditional evangelical Christianity. Do you find personally people who come from a non-religious tradition, people who have a, a background similar to you, uh, either they they weren't raised religious or they were religious and they they uh, toss that aside they get involved in the paranormal and then they settle to something settle into something that is much more traditionally religious um i i think uh most people's involvement in the paranormal uh, i don't know if in, involvement maybe is too strong a word most people's uh, acceptance of certain aspects of, of the paranormal that are out there I think it kind of coexists and fits in with wherever they happen to be in other aspects of their life. So if they uh, have other religious inclinations, it's kind of uh, an add-on. It may be that they have no religious inclinations whatsoever, and yet they find various, whether it's hauntings or uh, Bigfoot or what have you, a a fascination. And it may just be on a superficial level in terms of entertainment, popular culture, or it may be providing uh, more of a frame of meaning for them. So it really depends upon where the individual is coming from. For me, I, I hope the, the listener understands I'm kind of an unusual 
uh, duck in the evangelical world in a variety of ways, particularly in regards to the paranormal. Because again, in this book, I'm not uh, taking the position that we need to be completely skeptical of everything that takes place. I'm not embracing everything. On the other hand, I'm also not demonizing uh, this thing, saying whatever may be actually taking place must be satanic. I'm trying to carve a different way forward, even as a scholar with evangelical convictions. I'm saying these are serious phenomenon that people believe in or to find meaning in. And what does that tell us about where people are in the 21st century? And we appreciate that. Uh, and your blog, uh, just to make sure people understand me when when I uh, I, I mentioned this uh, in your introduction, it's Theophantastique, T-H-E-O-F-A-N-T-A-S-T-I-Q-U-E.com. And uh, they can find, I'm sure, a lot of your great ideas there, right? They can. I've been blogging for a number of years on pop culture and religion, horror, science fiction, fantasy, and the paranormal. Uh, they can do uh, searches under different categories there and find plenty of things on the paranormal, including interviews uh, with many authors and, and scholars on a variety of paranormal phenomena and many other things. Wonderful. John, we so much appreciate your time this week, uh, last week as well. It's been a great conversation. Well, I appreciate the opportunity for being here. You're listening to Common Threads on WGVU. My guest today, John Moorhead, the co-editor of The Paranormal and Popular Culture, a Postmodern Religious Landscape. Please join us again next week right here on Common Threads.